So last summer, we had the opportunity to take our girls to swim lessons at our local pool. Uh, our older girls, Madeline and Haven, they absolutely love swim lessons. I mean, they would wake up, they would get ready in their swimsuits and be out the door uh, before I was even out of my bed. And they loved it. We thought we would take our youngest, Brooklyn, to also get swim lessons. We thought she would have the same experience. So we get to the pool and we go into the pool for our very first swim lesson. And all that she does from the moment she's in is scream. She just started screaming, and I couldn't figure out why she was screaming. She, she just hated being there, hated being with other kids, and wanted to get out of the pool as fast as she could. I mean, I thought, something is wrong. So I tried everything that I could to calm her down, to show her that this is going to be fun, that she's going to learn how to swim. This is going to be so great for her. She wasn't having it. So for 30 minutes straight, all she did is scream the entire lesson. So I thought, okay, that's just week one. She'll get over it. Next week will be better. So we get there in the pool week two, and the same thing happens, screams the entire time, 30 minutes straight, nonstop screaming. I thought for sure this was going to end. We just sat on the steps, hoping that it would end at some point, and it never did. So we thought, okay, surely if we go just one more week, it's not going to happen. So we get there the third week, we get in the water, and what do you think happened? Of course, she started screaming, wouldn't stop, just screamed the entire time. I just spent the entire time just sitting on the steps. I finally decided this is it. You know, I think that swim lessons are not her jam, just not going to do it. So we pulled her out of swim lessons. We thought this is just not going to be what she's going to do. And you'd think from that that she would hate being in the water, that she would not want to go swim, that she just didn't want anything to do with water. That actually could not be further from the truth. She absolutely loves water. She would be in the pool all day, every day, if she could. In fact, just last weekend, we were at our local pool uh, down in Coralville, and we could not get her out of the pool. The pool was closing. They said, the pool is closed. Can you please exit the pool? And there she was in the middle of the pool. She would not get out. I had to literally go in, grab her, and pull her out of the pool. She loves it, loves the water, loves being in there. Now, what's the difference? Why is it that she would love being in the water but hate the lessons? Well, See, she goes in the pool with her floaty on. She loves her floaty. It's a panda bear with sunglasses. It's really cute. She loves it. But it gives her this freedom and confidence to go and swim wherever and however she wants to. She'll be in there. She'll swim with her face in the water. She'll go in the deep end and swim in the deep end of the pool. And she loves jumping from the side of the pool into the pool. Well, this last weekend, she had the opportunity to learn about diving boards. There were two diving boards that were there, one about a foot and a half off the water, the other three feet off the water. And we decided we're going to give her a chance to try it. So she gets up on the diving board, and she's standing on the edge and ready to go in. And the reason that she would even think about it is because she had her floaty on. And I was in the water ready to catch her. So she's standing on the edge, and she jumps out into the water. I catch her. She has a blast. She does that about five more times. And then she moves on to the higher one. I thought, surely she's not going to do this. But she gets to the top of this, this diving board, gets to the edge, and sure enough, just jumps straight off into the water without even thinking about it. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. By the end of our time there, she was not just dump, jumping off the diving boards, but she was trying all these new things, jumping off and holding her legs behind her. She was doing one foot. I mean, she was doing everything that she could jumping off the diving board. What gave her that freedom and confidence to do that was her floaty. She knew that no matter what was happening, that floaty was going to keep her safe. And because she had it on, she didn't even think about 
anything else. Gave her the freedom to swim and enjoy the pool without any fear. In our spiritual lives, there's another reality that's similar to this. We as believers can have a similar and the same kind of confidence. We can believe we are safe and we can live our lives in freedom and confidence and joy. And it's not because we have a floaty on. I mean, that would be weird if we always walked around with a floaty. But it's because we have something else that's giving us that safety and the confidence to live in Christ. And that is the power and the presence of God at work in our lives through the Holy Spirit. That is what gives us the ability to live the life that God is calling us to, to obey him like we ought to do, and to love like he loves. It is because of his work in our lives. And that's what John is going to tell us and describe to us today in the passage we're going to look at in his letter. Not only is he going to give us this incredible understanding of that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to live our lives for Christ, but more than that, we have the ability to have assurance and confidence and love in that life. In short, what he's going to tell us is that the the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to live the Spirit-filled Christ life. Let me say it this way so it's easier for us to remember. The Spirit empowers us to live a life of confidence, freedom, love, and joy. The Spirit empowers us to live a life of freedom, confidence, love, and joy. This is how he puts it in his letter. If you have your Bible, please turn to 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen, or you can grab it uh, from your phone if that works better for you. But this is what John is going to say. Chapter 4, we're going to start in verses 13 and read down to verse 21. John says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love God his brother. God, give us your ability to see how you want us to see in this passage you, your love for us, the Spirit's work in us, in our ability to live our lives for you. Make that clear to us today, we pray in your name. Amen. Probably the best way to understand this passage, what John is trying to get across, is in a shape of a circle. So in your notes, if you grab them today, you will see all that you see on the, on the front page is just a big circle. That's how John speaks. All throughout his letter, he speaks in circles. 
And in this passage, he's going to do it again in a circle. The best way to understand is that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives as followers of Jesus, and he's going to produce certain things in our lives. And that's what we're going to look at today. How does the Spirit work in our lives? The very first thing that the Spirit does and what John is talking about is he gives us the ability to believe. He prompts our faith. He allows us to know and understand who God is, how much he loves us, and what Jesus has done for us. But here's the thing. If you read through the New Testament, you will discover that the only way for us to believe, the only way for us to have a relationship with God is for him to do it on our behalf, to start the work in our lives. We are unable and incapable of beginning a relationship with God. We are spiritually dead. We have no desire to go after God. We have no desire to be in a relationship with him because we're spiritually dead. In fact, that's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. And John is saying it here that we only are able to believe only able to have faith because the Spirit has begun a work in our lives. John also wrote a gospel. A gospel is what we refer to as the first four books of the New Testament. It is four different accounts of the life, ministry, and work of Jesus. John writes the fourth one, and in that book, he gives us an incredible encounter between a a religious leader of the day. His name is Nicodemus. And Jesus, I call him Nick at night because he came to Jesus at night because he was afraid of what the other religious leaders would think of if he was talking to Jesus. So Nick comes over and he he meets up with Jesus at night and he says, hey, Jesus, I know that you have come from God because no one can do these works like you're doing except they come from God. So Jesus, knowing that this is a, a lot more, there's a lot more to it than just that simple understanding He tried to to get Nick to this understanding himself. Okay, Nick, I see what you're saying, that yes, I am from God, but it goes beyond that. No one can even begin that relationship with God, know who God really is, unless a supernatural work begins in their lives. Just like being born. Being born is something that happens. You You don't make yourself alive. You don't put yourself into the mother's womb. You don't Get yourself out. It's all a work that's done to you. It is done like that in a spiritual way as well. That you have to get this life in a supernatural way. And what Jesus says is, it's like this. You can't understand how the wind is. You you can't see the wind. You can't watch how the wind is, is, is functioning. You can only see the effects of the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You just see its effects. In the same way, you can't see the spirit at work in your life, but you can see how it works out of your life. You can see the effects of the spirits working in your life. And that's what he's saying here. You have to begin this relationship with me in a supernatural way. And if the spirit is working, that's what's going to cause you to see the truth. That's going to help you to understand who I am, how you need me, and how to begin a relationship with me. This is something you can't do on your own. You're incapable of doing it. The only way we can have a relationship with God is with the Spirit working in our life. Reminds me of this. A a while ago, I was in Taiwan with my parents. There were missionaries there. And we went down to the beach. And as we were out in the ocean, we were swimming around for a little bit. I took a break, went out and sat on the beach. My mom decided she was going to keep on swimming. And I'm watching her. She's swimming back and forth and back and forth. And I'm starting to think to myself, wow, my mom is a really good swimmer. 
Well, she's got great endurance. She is just, she's killing it out there. She just keeps on swimming back and forth and back and forth. I said, I was wondering, man, she's got to be getting tired. But she kept on swimming. Sure enough, though, a few moments later, I saw this simple gesture. That meant, hey, I'm in trouble. I can't get back. I need some help. So I, I threw off my glasses and my shirt, and I ran out into the water, swam out to her, and I tried to bring her in to the shore. About five minutes later, we're both out there, not getting anywhere. We're just swimming back and forth. We cannot get back to shore. So now both of us are with our hands waved out in the air, and the lifeguard has to get out. He takes his, his surfboard and goes out to get both my mom and I. We come in through the rocks, and we can make it safely to shore. What we didn't realize is that we were caught in an undercurrent. This little underground river was leading us out to sea. And we had no idea, and we couldn't get out of it. We were swimming, but we weren't making any progress, and we couldn't get to safety on the beach. We were caught in the stream going out to sea. That's how it is in our spiritual lives, that we are caught in the stream that is leading us away from God, is leading us to destruction, and we can't get out of it. We're, we may try to swim as hard as we can, but we can't get out. We need somebody to come and rescue us. And that's what God does for us in Jesus. He sends him to rescue us. And it is not a work that we can do. It is only something that he can do. He opens our eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. And then we respond in faith. And we believe. That is an effect of the Spirit working in our lives. I mean, that any of us believe in event and a person that existed or happened 2,000 years ago is a miracle of grace because none of us were there. None of us truly saw Jesus. We didn't hear him. We didn't see his miracles. We didn't see him die. We didn't see him rise again. So how do we believe? That is a work of God in our behalf. But it's not a baseless work because John goes on to say, hey, look, this is, this is based on eyewitness accounts. We were there. We saw it. We touched Jesus. We heard Jesus. We saw him do miracles. We saw him heal people. We saw him bring people back to life. We saw him die on the cross. And we saw him go into the tomb. Then we saw him rise from the dead. We saw it with our own eyes so you can have confidence that this is the truth. And the Holy Spirit is working through their testimony through their account saying, this is the truth. And we respond to it in faith and we believe it. And then we reach out and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is true, that he's real, and we accept him as the Savior. And that's what John says here, as the Savior of the world. Do you see that in verse 13? Sorry, verse 14, we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That term Savior carries so much meaning. It means everything that encompasses the work of Jesus. But what's interesting about this word, how John uses it, is back in the time he was writing, that term was used to refer to pagan deities, gods of the Romans or the Greeks, but it was also used to describe humans. If a human being did something that was courageous or great, did something incredible as far as conquering a kingdom, he was called the Savior. And more specifically, in this sense, Caesar, the Roman ruler of the day, was referred to as the Savior of the world. That same term, Savior of the world. And in that time, all Roman citizens were required to acknowledge Caesar 
as the Savior of the world. So for those people that John was writing to to reach out in faith and say, Jesus is my Savior, was to set themselves opposed to Caesar, which put them at risk, and many of them suffered because of that confession. But they did so because they knew this was the truth. And they reached out in faith and believed it. And they only did that because of the Spirit's work in their heart to believe that this is the truth. But this is not the only thing that the Spirit does. The Spirit starts working in and through that, that moment, that commitment where you reach out in faith and you trust Jesus as your Savior. He starts to work in our life. And the second thing he produces in our life is assurance. John goes on to clarify a little bit more about the Savior of the world, saying that there's a confession that's attached to this. It's very important for us to believe the truth about who Jesus is. And John says, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that this is the one, this is the one, the only one who can save you. Your confession has to be wrapped up in Jesus and is only as a person places their faith and trust in Jesus that he's joined to God in fellowship. And that's what John is talking about right here, that that's how our fellowship begins is because of the confession that we have in Christ, who he is, what he has done. And we can be sure that we have received that faith, because it changes the way that we live. We now live in a relationship with God. In that relationship, John says, is mutual love. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to save us, to rescue us. And now we get to live in that same relationship, knowing that God loves us so much, and we love God so much. And we live in that unique relationship together. That's what John Stott says, that we are brought into this fellowship with him, and we live in a sphere of love, both as the object of God's love and as the channel of that love to others. When my wife, Ashley, and I, we got married, on our wedding day, we stood before uh, the pastor at the altar, and we made vows to each other, promises to each other. It was based on the fact that we loved each other madly and passionately. We still love each other madly and passionately, but this is the the moment that we made vows to each other, knowing that our life is going to be different. And since that moment, our life has gone through quite a bit of change. We've gone through a lot of different seasons, ups and downs in challenges and successes in our lives. But the thing that has held us together is not just our love, but the commitment that we have to each other, that bond that we have together to where we can live freely in a relationship that's built around love. We have made promises of love, and we live in the promises of that love. That's the same with our relationship with Jesus, that we have made this commitment to him. And as a result, we know he's not going to leave us. We know that nothing is going to change that relationship with us. And we get to live in just the fact and the freedom that he loves us. And everything that he does is loving for us. This is amazing, It's an amazing truth because we can have the confidence and and knowledge that everything that God does is loving. We are always assured of his love for us. We are always recipients of his love and care and provision for us. 
We are always kept under his watchful eye where nothing happens outside of his plan or his will for us. We're always kept in the promises that he has for us and that we will one day be with him forever. We are assured that everything is okay in our relationship with him. We live with him in love. We can always be there with him to talk with, to cry with, to pray to, to vent to, to bring our requests to. This relationship is amazing. There is an incredible assurance that comes that we are set in our relationship with God because our relationship is built on Jesus and what he has done for us. When we get Jesus right, who he is, and what he's done for us, it brings us into a relationship with him and gives us assurance that we are connected forever with God. But it gets better. Believe it or not, it does. It gets way better in the next part of the passage because the Spirit gives us something better than that. So we have faith. The Spirit prompts our faith. We believe. Then we believe and it leads us to assurance because we know who Jesus is. That assurance leads us to confidence. Confidence. John says in verse 17 that by this is love perfected in us. He's looking back saying, because we live in this realm, this fear of love, and looking forward to the next part, which says that we can uh, have freedom from fear on the day of judgment, it's because of this. The God who is love wants his children to have confidence. Listen to what he said in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. says, see how much, oh, I missed it. See how very much the Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. This is going to be so good. John is telling us that we can have absolute, total confidence in our relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. There are three things that will give us this confidence and will change your life, literally. The first thing that John is saying is we can have confidence in the day of judgment because we are treated the same as Jesus is. We are treated the same as Jesus. John makes an absolutely stunning statement here. He says, as he, talking about Jesus, as Jesus is in this world, so are we in this world. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. What he's saying is, The way that God the Father looks at Jesus is the same way he looks at those of us who are followers of Jesus. The way that God the Father treats Jesus, his son, is the same way that God treats us, the followers of Jesus. That is mind-blowing for me. One of my favorite musical artists, they actually coined the name of their group based on this verse. They're called As He Is. And my favorite song that they do is called The Truth About Me. And they think through this passage and they try to think, what does this really mean? It says this, when I believe the truth about my king, it changes everything. 
And the second verse says, when I, let me get it right. It says, when I believe who you say I am, I am confident in your promises. Jesus, you are the truth about me. You are the hope that sets me free. Jesus, you are the truth about me. You are the life that I will live when I just believe. We are in Christ. So in Christ, is Jesus ever afraid to speak his mind to the Father? No. Does God the Father love Jesus with an unquenchable love? Yes. Does God ever treat Jesus unfairly? No. Does Jesus ever have to worry about being abandoned by his Father? No. Do we, as followers of Jesus, have to worry about any of those things? No, because the way that God the Father looks at Jesus is how he looks at us. We are treated the same. God will not reject Jesus. He will not reject you. God will not stop loving Jesus. He will not stop loving you. Jesus can say anything to God, and we can as well. As Jesus is, so are we. We are treated the same as Jesus is. Number two, we are absolutely and completely loved by God. We are completely loved. John goes on to say, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The word that John uses for fear here is where we get our, our words for phobia. A lot of people are, are afraid of things. You might be afraid of water. You might be afraid of heights. I am deathly afraid of snakes. If I see them, I start to have a panic attack. I will literally faint if they come and touch me. So I am deathly afraid of snakes. Please don't, please don't pull a prank on me with a snake. Okay. In this passage, what John is referring to is people that are afraid, not of snakes, water, height, feet, whatever it is, but fear of final retribution, final punishment, judgment. It means this. A lot of people fear or they look at God as him coming to this earth at one point in the future as the judge. And everything is going to be laid out before him. And we know that we have this massive stockpile of sins in our life. And we, that we know about. And we also have a stockpile of sins that might be even bigger of sins we don't know about. And we're afraid of them being in front of a holy, righteous, just God and him seeing them and judging us because of that. And it gets to be crushing for us. But here's what makes it a little bit worse. Many times, our view of God is impacted by the way that our parents have parented us. And if your parents withheld love from you or they did so as a way of disciplining or controlling you, or if you grew up in a home where you never felt like nothing could ever shake your parents' love for you, if you didn't have that, then you're going to transfer that to what you believe about God. That you're going to think that God is just up there waiting for you to screw up. That he's just waiting for you to mess up again and he, that blow is going to come. And you start thinking through this, man, I, I just know that God is up there. He's seeing what I'm doing, and I know that he's upset. And he, you, you picture him as with a paddle ready to get you if you screw up. 
And not just that, but Satan loves to just jump on that to try to start compounding all those accusations against you. You'll never measure up. You'll never do what God says. Look at you. You said this. You did this. And he starts condemning you over and over again. And and if you don't have a view of God like what he wants you to have, if you have a view like this where you feel he's coming at you, you will always be in fear. And so many believers, so many followers of Jesus today live in fear because they are afraid of God coming at them with a big stick waiting for them because they are going to screw up at some point. And what John is trying to get across to you is this, that there is no fear in this. You can't have that same fear if you are truly understanding God's love. We are fully and completely loved by God. I love what one commentator says, and I want you to see it because it's so powerful. Because the love I received was discovered at the moment of my deepest need and vulnerability. Therefore, once I know I am loved, when I am empty-handed, this sets me free from the depressive self-doubt about my future acceptability. God has already seen me completely, and he has loved me in that total vulnerability. Therefore, further judgment is not really a new reality with which my scope. The Christ I met on the road as my redeemer is the Christ I meet in judgment as my Lord. This is a phenomenal statement. This means this. God loved you when you were unlovable. God loved you when you didn't love him and you have no desire to love him. God loved you when you were armed at the teeth against him. God loved you when you were a rebel. God loved you then and you had nothing to give. You had no good things to provide for him. You had nothing lovable about you in that moment. And God said, I love you. I love you. And I love you so much. I'm going to give of myself for you. I'm going to send my son, my most precious possession for you so that we can have a relationship together so that you can know what love is like and to always know that you are loved. There's no place for fear in this love because if we truly grasp the fact that God loves us fully, completely, when we are at our worst, there's nothing to fear in the future of what we will do because he's already loved us then. But it's even more than that. John goes on and he says, not only this, but we can have this confidence because we are excluded from punishment. We are excluded from punishment. When I was a boy, my brother and I, we would fight all the time. All the time. Sometimes those fights would escalate. So much so that my mom would come in and she would say, just wait till your father gets home. Your dad is going to punish you when he gets home tonight. Man, if I was ever disobedient or disrespectful to my, my mom and I got that, I would spend like hours in my room just thinking, boy, when dad gets home, what's going to happen? Like, I knew what, what to expect. I just didn't know how. I knew it was going to be a paddle or a fly swatter or a belt. I mean, you could just go down the list. I, I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but it wasn't going to be good. But I spent that time living in fear, waiting for that moment when my punishment is going to come. That's how a lot of followers of Jesus live now. They live in this fear that when God comes back, he's coming back to punish them. 
to punish them. In fact, a long time ago, at the very beginning of my ministry, I used to always say this to myself and to others. And I would say, hey, be careful what you're doing. Be careful what you're doing because you don't want Jesus to show up when you are doing fill in the blank. Doing that thing, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it is. You don't want him to show up at that moment to see you doing that. What in the world was I thinking at that moment? Because that, that statement is wrapped up in fear and punishment. But what Jesus wants us to understand is what John is saying here. There is no fear in love because fear is based on punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John has said it clearly over and over again, but here very clearly in this. Brothers, sisters, Jesus has forgiven all your sins. They're all gone. There is nothing more to fear. You have nothing to worry about when Jesus appears. He's not coming as your judge. He's coming as your Lord and Savior and Redeemer, the King. All of that is gone. The punishment for all that we have done was laid on Jesus, and Jesus paid for it all. Your past your present, and your future sins. You see, punishment is absolutely foreign to those who have been forgiven and loved. If Jesus has forgiven us all of our sins, all of our sins, then we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Because we are completely loved by God, chosen by God, forgiven by God, justified by by God, adopted by God, sealed by God. We are protected by God. There is nothing to fear in the future because of who God is, what he's done for us. Guys, do you see how incredible this is? How does this free us to live for God? When we don't have to live in fear? We don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future. We don't have to worry about whether or not God is going to punish us or judge us or send us away from him. It's foreign to us because it's all been taken care of by Jesus. And what John is saying is it frees us to live now. We don't have to worry about all these things. We don't have to live in fear of who God is or what he may or may not do. We are completely accepted and loved by God. So now we are given the freedom to live for God to live like he wants us to live for him. And that includes how we treat other people, how we love. And that's exactly what John gets to now. It's an outflow. It's the same thing he said earlier in the same chapter, that if we understand the reality of God's love and all he's done for us, it will show itself in the way that we live our lives, particularly how we love others. And in this case, John is putting it in the negative and he's really saying it in the boldest way he possibly can. Listen to how he finishes off this passage. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John starts off that little passage, that little couple of verses by saying, listen, the only way you're going to be able to do this, this kind of love that I'm calling you to, is because you have experienced it. The only way we can love is because we have been loved. 
But because we've been loved in the same kind of love that God has, we can give that same kind of love to others. And if you don't, then it's showing something is completely wrong in your life. Evidently, something was going on in the church that John was writing to because people were claiming to follow God, but they were refusing to love other people the way that God loves us. And so what John is drawing our attention to is that something has got to change in our lives. We have to show that we have loved God by loving other people. What John is saying is, is simply this. It's very easy for a person to say, I love God. And not prove it. Or prove it through simple things like maybe they'll show up to church. Maybe they'll read their Bible every once in a while. But there's no tangible way of seeing how do I love a God who is invisible, who I can't see. But you can very clearly see how a person loves other people. Because they're in front of us. We can see a person, how he talks to another follower of Jesus. If they're crass or if they're rude or abrasive or critical. We can see if a person re- removes themselves wholeheartedly from the community of faith saying, I don't need to be part of a church. I don't need to go to church. I don't need anyone else in my life. I'm just going to have my own solo relationship with God. What John is saying is something is wrong here. Because if you have been loved by God and free to love others, you're going to do that. Because the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Remember, the Holy Spirit, you can't see him working, but you can see the effects So if the Holy Spirit is in you, dwelling within you as a follower of Jesus, he's going to produce love for others in your life. And if you're not responding and loving others, then something is wrong. And that's what John is saying. You can't do both. You can't hate other people or treat them badly and still say you love God. You have to show your love for God by how you love other people. But when the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life, when they are transformed and changed. What an incredible sight that is. What an incredible thing to see when he showers people with his love. We get to see people and their lives change. We see people who were cold-hearted warm up to others. We see people who were introverts want to tell people more about Jesus. We see people who were stuck in unforgiveness become forgiving people. We get to see people who are really crass with their words becoming loving with their words. We get to see life change happen because anytime the Spirit is at work, He sweetens bitterness, He softens hardness, and He multiplies love. When the Spirit is at work, life is going to change for you. The way that you treat other people is going to be different. One of the founders of Gordon-Conwell University in Divinity School, his name is A.J. Gordon, he was out for a walk one day, and he stumbled across something that really caught his attention. And as he looked, he saw what looked like a man standing, at the hand, uh, standing in front of a, a hand pump. And he was just pumping on that thing like crazy. And he wasn't stopping, just kept on pumping and pumping and pumping nonstop, and he was going really fast. And He was confused by this. Man, this guy's got a lot of energy. I wonder what he's trying to do. What is he trying to accomplish through this? So he started to get a little bit closer. And the closer he got to this, he noticed that it wasn't actually a man. It was actually a wooden structure, like a a wooden being made to look like a man, painted to look like a man. And what he also noticed is that his arm was hinged at the elbow, and it was wired to the pump. 
And then he saw that that pump was not on its own. It was actually an artesian well. So the water was bubbling out of the ground and it was making him pump his hand. So this guy was like, this thing was just pumping like this, but it wasn't him. It was the water that was coming out of the ground that was providing life for this character that was causing him to produce things. In the same way, that is what's taking place in our lives. When the Holy Spirit is at work, he is providing things. He's providing resources and affecting our lives. And the effects come out. All we have to do is hold on to the handle. He's working through us to love God. He's working through us to have faith. He's working through us to give us that assurance and that confidence. And the result of all of this is joy. Joy comes in the midst of all of this. As we understand who God is and our eyes are open to the truth about Jesus and we get to know and believe that he is the savior of the world. It gives us joy because we know that we are loved by God and forgiven by God. And when we get to see that faith grow and we become assured that Jesus is real, that he has saved us, that he has delivered us from all of our sin, it brings joy because we are assured of our faith. And as our faith develops and we get this confidence in our life that we don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to be afraid of his judgment. We don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen to us in the future because God loves us so much and that produces joy in our life. Oh my goodness, I don't have to be afraid of this anymore. I can be free from this worry and this fear. And that brings joy. And then as we love other people, as we get to really be conduits, channels of God's love for other people, it fills us with joy as we get to see God working through us to impact other people's lives. And as we develop more and more love for other people, it reassures us of our faith that truly we are followers of Jesus. And that faith leads to more assurance in our life. And that more assurance leads us to more confidence in our faith. And it leads us to greater ability to love others, which goes back to give us more faith in who God is. And it goes around and around. And as a result, the Spirit just radiates joy out of our lives. That's what should describe us as followers of Jesus. And I hope that that's what gives us the ability today to live the joy-filled, Spirit-powered Christ life. God, thank you so much for your word and the ability to love you, to understand you, to live our lives for you pray that you would confirm this to our hearts today. Give us the ability to love you like we ought, to rest in the fact that you love us, saved us. Give us the boldness and the ability to love others like you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.